It is such a pleasure to be here with you. I love you very much. That's the only words I really can say is just I love you very much. And it's so great to, to see you this morning. And, and what an honor to be able to, to bring God's word to you uh, this morning. I do hope that I get to, um, uh, to speak with everyone who would like to speak with me. I'd love to be able to talk to you at the end of the sermon or at the end of the service. Um, so, and it's been, it's been wonderful. It's been overwhelmingly good. And it's such a delight to, to be able to come back to Sycamore and to see uh, just just how healthy and vibrant and, um, uh, and vivacious uh, you are. Uh, the generational handoff has been so good uh, and so healthy. And so um, I got to, to speak with Sean and get to know him and love that guy. Uh, wonderfully mature uh, uh, fellow who's, who's, who, who God has, has uh, gifted and also um, just shaped for his purpose here and for this generation. And so I couldn't be more delighted. And it's so good to see so many of you um, who I've known from years past. Again, it's been, it's been a good long time since, since I was here. And so what a wonderful thing to see, you know, youth that have grown up and that have come back to this area. I love you so much. And uh, so it's such a delight to bring God's word uh, this morning. We're studying Matthew's gospel back at Sycamore, or back at, see, back at Christ Church of Wiesbaden. Um, you guys really are in the DNA of our church. I mean, we are your daughter. Um, very much. And so, um, but back at Christ Church of Wiesbaden, we're studying Matthew's gospel. And uh, we're in Matthew 18. Uh, we're going to study four verses here. And uh, they're, they're heavy four verses. They may not seem it, but they're actually quite heavy. And because they are so heavy, let me begin, begin with a little bit of levity, um, because the levity is going to end quick. Um, so how many of you have um, own a home or are uh, hoping to one day buy a home. Raise your hands. Okay, now who would like to, who, who, who would like to rent forever? One. You always went to, <laughs> Sean's thinking, maybe I'd like to rent. <laughs> yeah, you, could, you wouldn't have to do those repairs, right? Sometimes it's easier. Um, but, you know, when you, when you do buy a home, you pay attention to, the, to what's wrong with it. And sometimes it's good to have, find a home that has the right things wrong with it, right? Because it drops the price. But then it's possible to find a home that has the wrong things wrong with it. And one of the wrong things that can be wrong with a home would be that the, the foundation is cracked, that there's a structural problem. Uh, structural problems are deal breakers. You don't get into a home with structural problems because why? They're structural and they only get worse. You ain't fixing that. That home needs to be scrapped, right? It's just, it's done. And so, um, and so don't, you know, a cracked foundation it's only going to get worse. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is dealing with a structural problem in his disciples. They have a cracked foundation. This is serious. A serious problem uh, in his disciples. And, um, and so he basically stops everything and he has to deal with it. The structural problem is pride uh, in his salvation, in his uh, disciples. And so our gracious Savior stops to speak with his his disciples about this structural problem. So let's, let's give our attention to God's word in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, or God's word says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put them, him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Structural problems are hard to hide for very long. This is true with, with, um, this is true with buildings, and it's true in our discipleship. We reveal our structural problems, and because the disciples were in the presence of Jesus, who was the most sensitive and, 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 and uh, perceptive human being ever to live, these problems showed themselves easily to him. You have a sermon outline, and the first point there is a revealing question. In verse 1, the disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in Mark's gospel, this account tells us uh, that that this, this is a conversation that they were having with themselves, and as we'll see, it's a conversation that they, they had with themselves quite a lot. It was very important to them, having, finding the answer to this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that was a big deal to them. They really wanted to know. And so there would have been some options, some front runners, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus is not in the contention because he's the Messiah, so he's clearly in the lead, so they give him first place. But who's going to be second? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the options would have been, well, Peter would have come to mind because he always kind of puts himself out there. He's on the relational inner circle with Jesus. He was invited uh, to the transfiguration, that small party of three people that happened in the last chapter. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe it'll be John, because John's also in that inner circle of three, and he's different from Peter. John's a lover. John's deep-hearted. John is, it wouldn't surprise you if it'd be somebody like John, or maybe James. He's also in the circle of three. Maybe it's another apostle that will, or disciple who will come later that's unnamed. Maybe it's a saint from the past. Who knows? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so um, whoever it will be, um, their concern for this revealed their pride. It's a structural problem. So what is Pride. Well, let's spiral down to a definition. We'll begin first with what I found on my Apple computer with the little dictionary that comes with it. And um, pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. So pride is, it's it's something that you are or do or are related to uh, that people can look at you and go, wow, wish I could be that or have that or do that. And, and you go, I know. And that's pride. Uh, and um, yet the Bible tells us that pride runs deeper than just feelings. It's an attitude of the heart. Pride is self-reverence. It's self-centeredness, self-importance, self-fulfillment, self-worship. Stephen Charnock, the old Puritan, says that pride is the self contending with God for preeminence. Pride places us in competition with God. Pride seeks to dethrone God and enthrone itself as king. And this is the core sin of Satan, and it was the core sin of Adam and Eve. Think carefully about the temptation that was given to Adam and Eve. Um, they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And Satan said to them in verse, three, in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Genesis, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that was the thing, that was the magic word for them. You'll be like God. And they said, ooh, that's what we want. 
We want to be like God. Pride. It's the original sin. I want to be like God. I want to be next to him. I want to be, not because I love him. I want to be his equal. I don't want him having authority over me. I want to be enthroned next to God. You'll be like God. Now, do you honestly think that when they got that throne seated next to God the Father, that they would have been content to be co-rulers with him? No. I'm reminded of how Valeric threw the, the emperor off his throne in the 5th century, just throwing him down, and, uh, and that's what we would do. Get off that throne, Caesar. You're not Caesar, I am, says the Goth. And that's the nature of pride. Pride sees God as composition, uh, comp- competition. He is opposition. He's the opposition party. He's the ruler that needs to be overthrown. Jonathan Edwards writes, Pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe, and it's the last sin to be rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It's the first sin, the last sin, the worst sin. There is no ma- other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. Pride is God's most stubborn enemy. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. Of all lusts, it is the most secretive, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways and working. It is ready to mix with everything. Pride mixes with everything. You ever find yourself doing something truly spiritual only to instantly go into pride? It's horrible. When you want to do good, evil is right there with you. Pride is pervasive in us by nature. We can be proud about anything and everything. We can be proud about proud and brag about our accomplishments, or we can be proud that we keep our greatest accomplishments hidden. We can be proud that um, about what we own, uh, or we can be proud about the stuff that we've given away. We can be proud and share our opinions boldly, or we can be silent and feel superior because we don't have the need to share our opinions. We're more well-heeled. Well uh, pride can show itself by putting on the fanciest clothes and seeking to impress, and pride can seek to remain hidden by being modest and shy. Pride is a structural problem for all of us. It challenges God for supremacy, and in human relationships, it causes us to compete with one another and compare ourselves to one another. C.S. Lewis wrote, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Pride causes us to compete and compare ourselves with others, and that's precisely what the disciples are doing in this passage. They're competing. They're in competition with one another and with God. They have no idea how dominated by pride they are. They don't see it, and this is the problem with pride. It's blind. Proud people don't think they're proud. Humble people, on the other hand, 
know just how toxically arrogant they are. (laughs) William Farley writes, pride is blind to the existence of itself, and therefore the more proud you are, the more humble you will feel, and the more humble you are, the more proud you will feel. That's because true humility is the opening of the eyes to personal sin, and one of the first things a humble person becomes aware of is his or her pride. What did Isaiah say when he saw God? Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I have a dirty mouth, and I live amongst a people with dirty mouths. This is pride. He poured contempt on his pride. He finally saw it, Isaiah did, when he encountered God in nearness. And so if we're arrogant, it just shows that we're far off from God, and that's the problem with the disciples. Jesus knows they're far off from him. They've derailed. Jesus knows it. He sees the human heart. So let me ask you, how proud are you? Just go ahead and rank yourself on a scale to one to 10. How proud are you? You know that's a trick, right? What are you, a four? You a four? You know, a bad day, you're a seven? You know, you're not like that guy. That guy over there has to show off. You're not that guy. You're just proving you're a 10. Right, and that's what we are. We are. If or, or if, if we, for something anything less than ten, we just we just are not at that moment in the presence of God, because <laughs> um, uh, we don't see ourselves for who we are. Um, but how concerned are you about having people think highly about you? The answer is extremely. You're extremely concerned. How well do you receive correction? And when you're criticized in a way that's not 100% accurate or fair, do you seek to find parts of the criticism that are true and then apply them, even though it was meant to, meant to hurt you? Do, you? do you try to apply that? Or do you just get, do you counterattack? Do you defend? Do you shoot holes in them? You know, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. You know, you could say a million things bad about me, and, and none of them were true. If, if none of them were true, I could still find things that were worse that you didn't bring up. And the same thing is true with you. Um, Can you be contradicted? How well do you handle being disrespected? Does it sit with you? Do you you measure the slights? Do you have a real sensitive gauge for measuring slights? Yes. We're just not in the presence of God. Um, Can you show weakness? Can you talk about your humiliating failures freely? Look at Paul in his epistles talking about his humiliating failures freely. He talked about how in, first, in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, how he had to be let down in a wall, from a wall, because he was running, because he, you know, it just talks about how he failed and how he was afraid and um, how he would speak with fear and trembling, you know, how he would preach. He was weak. Uh, Paul spoke about his failures because he boasted in Christ. What's your boast? What's my boast? Pride is a, can you apologize easily? You know, one thing that's a quality of, a, of an elder in, the, in God's church, and it's what every Christian should do, it's the ability to repent quickly. Get it out of the way. Just own up. Um, all of us has this structural flaw of pride. It threatens to ruin us completely. It threatened to ruin the disciples completely. Jesus knows, knows this, and that's the reason he deals with them the way that he does. And so... To this revealing question, he gives an unexpected answer, which is the next point. 
In verse 2, Jesus gives his disciples an object lesson. And calling to him a child, he put them in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples thought or perhaps what, that perhaps one of them would become, uh, be considered the greatest. Um, but the last person that they thought would be in the running for being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was some random kid. And that's exactly what Jesus brought into their midst. And so we can see that Jesus, he's not slamming them. You know, this isn't a body slam passage. Jesus does that sometimes. But this is a put down passage. And it is, it is complete. It is a total humiliating passage. Jesus takes them from the top shelf of their own opinion. And he just takes them and puts them on the carpet, on the ground, all the way down. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means that, first, you might not even get in. That's what he's saying. He tells them by bringing this child to them, he's showing them that they're so far off base, they've derailed. It's a complete humiliation. So what is it about children that Jesus idealizes? Well, let me give you a hint. It's not the innocence of children. I have four children, and I can attest to you that they are terrible liars. <laughs> they are terrible thieves. We have a video of my daughter. She snuck an ice cream bar, and she, was, she ate it in the closet, and she closed the door. My wife heard her scurrying around and finds her, and she took the video camera and says, Anna, what did you take? She's like, you know, like nothing. <laughs> She's got the ice all over her face. Um, yeah, so... Uh, but children are not innocent. So what, is it, what are the admirable qualities about, about children that Jesus wants his disciples to emulate? Because there's something there. Well, children aren't great and they know it. Children are weak. Children are small. They're of limited capacity for knowledge and all of that. And they don't even try to compete with adults because that's just, it's a, they're an, adults are in a different category. So think of a four-year-old child, five-year-old child. Who knows how old this child was? But small, spindly little arms, not full-grown, didn't weigh a thing, you know. Tiny little thing, always has to ask for help, can't do anything for him or herself. And so um, children are weak, they're dependent, they don't even think about competing with adults. It's not even in their wheelhouse, or it, they don't even think about it because um, it's just, they're not concerned about that. They're not concerning themselves with greatness. And therefore, children are a model of humility. They put greatness out of mind. They're too weak. They ask for help. They're dependent. They're a model of humility, like we should be. And Jesus wants us to be humble like children. And this means that he want, wants us to not even concern ourselves with greatness. Not at all. And not seriously. A high reputation or having people praise us or being well thought of should never be our concern as Christians. Not at all. If someone wants to praise you for the good job you've done, then that's great. But it's not the praise that we seek. Here's an anonymous quote, but it's somebody else's, and so I have to cite it. Uh, human compliments are like perfume. Smell them, enjoy them while they last, but please don't drink them in. They will poison you. They're toxic to your soul if you drink them. If your faithfulness in a task gets you promoted to a position of power, then that's great. Use it for the Lord, but don't, for, 
don't you for one minute think that you've done any of that without God because he did it all and you did nothing. You did nothing. Oh, I did a little. No, you did nothing. Who gave you the air to breathe? Who created your arteries? Who, who, who put you in the culture that you're in? Who put you in the family that you're in? Did you make yourself a Christian? You know that you didn't. It was a new birth. Who gave you birth the first time? Your mama did. You, didn't, you did nothing. You did nothing. God did it all. Don't pat yourself on the back. Let others praise you, but not your own lips, and don't drink it in. Do you see how misplaced our arrogance is? And it's so it's a problem because it's in all of us. I think that so much of the bickering in our society, and I can honestly say in your society, mine's different, that I live in. <laughs> it ain't better, just different problems. But I know American culture, and I love American culture, and I'm American. But the bickering in our society, so much of it's just arrogance. What if we all saw ourselves as the greatest sinners and the most arrogant and toxic of all people, like Isaiah did? Imagine what that would do. Imagine if the church led in that way. I must tell you, my spirit was provoked within me yesterday out of, out of all places at the TJ Maxx. <laughs> I was there and I saw they had their pride, you know, um, out, you know, whatever, the in cap with all the pride stuff because it's Pride Month and rainbows on everything. And then I saw Snoopy, uh, you know, peanuts, uh, sheets, bed sheets with the, with the rainbow and it was on the pride section. And I was thinking, there's another child's thing that's taken. Then I remember Charles, Charles Schultz was a Christian. And yet his art is being used in uh, the propagation of the whole pride agenda. And uh, my spirit was provoked within me. And I just thought, you know, this isn't my country anymore. And there was mourning. And then there was that, you know, this place is going into the Romans one direction. And I talked to my brother about it. And we just lamenting it. Oh, it's terrible. Mary's going downhill. And then Romans 1 and... What comes after Romans 1? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Praise God for the gospel, right? Because it's for every slam that any community in our, that's outside the church thinks they got coming, and they do, it's sin. It's awful. It's Romans 1. But Romans 2 ain't much better and more comforting. Um, if anything, it's worse because the real howitzers get aimed at the religious, self-righteous people. And it's only the gospel that frees us. And it's the only gospel that makes it, makes it different, you know, anything different. So we've got to lead with that humility because the message uh, of Romans 1 is clear. Uh, the wrath of God is stored up. It's, it's coming. Uh, and how did we escape it? We didn't escape it through our sexual normativity because we don't have it. And we didn't escape it through virtue. We escaped it through Christ. So our arrogance is misplaced. The Puritan William Jenkins wrote, our father was Adam, our grandfather was dust, and our great-grandfather was nothing. Humility is fitting for us, and so we are called to be like children. Children don't have much to offer, but they are dearly loved. They are the apples of their parents' eyes. And because he loves us and he, 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 he uses us, he grows us, he molds us, and he makes us, 
Yet we have to be ever watchful that we not take any of the credit for his work because none of the credit goes to us rightly. The disciples were secretly taking credit for the work of Jesus. Jesus said, remember, you did not choose me. No, I have chosen you. And they said, oh, yeah, we remember that. And why did you choose us? And he didn't say, but they know why. They're a little better than the other. They're not like the riffraff. I mean, they're good Jewish boys. And they, you know, Matthew had the problem with the tax collecting. But, they, but they're cut above. They're a cut above. Jesus chose me for some reason. I bring something to the table is what they would have thought. Then they must have thought that. That's what you would think. Maybe that is what you do think. Um, no, that's not it at all. And Jesus tells them, look, the conversation that you're having about who's going to be the greatest, you might not even get in. All right? That's how serious of, prob- of a structural problem this is. You need to change. You need to be converted. Because you- if you're not converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples need to have a face-to-face encounter with, with all that they are not and all that God is. If they truly saw God for who he was, they would not be having this conversation. This conversation would be the last conversation to occur, occur to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. That would be the last idea. Imagine if you were standing before God, if you were to see God, what would, you come, what would come to your mind? And in moments of prayer, when I think of this, it depends, it depends on the time, but I think the first thing that I would say, one of the first things I would say is, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I love you, all that other stuff, but I am a man of unclean lips. I am, un, I am undone. I am undone. The disciples have so derailed spiritually that they think that they're in the running for being the greatest. It shows how spiritually entitled they are. And they need to be leveled. That's the word that, that's what this word means here, humbled. Um, It it means to be leveled. It's the word that was uh, quoted from the prophet Isaiah about John the Baptist when he was coming and make way the, uh, make way the, the, um, uh, for, for the Lord, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. Same word here, humble, scraped. That's what needs to be, that's what needs to happen to their pride. It just needs to be removed, leveled. It's dramatic imagery. The only way that this is going to happen for them is for them to recognize the awesome majesty of God. And that can be had in two ways. It can be had in the Old Testament way by seeing the greatness of God and the grace of God in the Old Testament, which is something that these boys are familiar with, these disciples are familiar with. It can also happen by them viewing God as he is revealing himself in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. They haven't really taken it to heart yet, but Jesus has already revealed to them two and a half times that he will suffer and that he will die. And he's going to go to the cross. He's already, it's been revealed two, two times, so two and a half times so far, the sufferings. And they didn't pay attention to that. They totally didn't get the resurrection and the whole sufferings thing they didn't want to hear that. It didn't really register. So they don't really know Jesus. You can't really know Jesus apart from the whole aspect of his sufferings. They think he's just laying low right now. He's not just laying low. He's going to go lower. They don't know this yet. And so um, they're going, to, they're going to, to learn something when they watch their Savior die a gruesome death. And then when they see him resurrect, 
It's going to change them. God's going to give them the spiritual eyes and ears to understand the significance of, the, of, the, of that central work of Jesus, his death and resurrection. But right now, it doesn't make sense to them. But we do know how this works out. Jesus gives us reason for humility by the cross. The cross humbles us to the uttermost. It is the ultimate antidote to pride and the greatest encouragement to humility. The cross speaks so many things. But what, one of the things, at least, that the cross says is, you put me here. It was because of you. When we drink the, 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 the blood of Christ and eat the body of Christ and the Lord's Supper, that's what our sin required. Jesus to be ripped apart. Jesus' blood to be shed. That's what our sin requires. He loves us so much that he would do that for us, but we killed him. The cross, well, John Stott says it better than I could. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited the place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Have you been with Jesus? Do you know him? Were you there when they crucified your Lord? Do you, do you see that? When, you, when, you, when you've seen that, and I really mean to use the verb seen, when you see that, by God, God by faith giving you the eyes to understand the significance of the cross, it, it, it causes you to pour contempt on all your pride and, just, and, to, and to lament it, that, that toxic stew of pride. Um, in us. We are small, we are frail, we are sinful, and yet the Lord takes note of us. Psalm 8, David says, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? This is who I am. This is who you are. Arrogant, wanting to throw God off the throne. Um, and yet God is, the, uh, is the, the type of God who we are dear to him, and he takes note of us. Psalm 8. Do you ever marvel that the Lord would have anything to do with you? And then, not that he just takes note of you, takes thought of you, and looks at you and says, I've got my eye on you. No, it's way more than that. He gives us the intimacy of children. He calls us to be his children. He adopts us into his family. I mean, does it get any better than that? You know, the, the intimacy of that, the, 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 the freedom to come and go, the freedom to just be free in God's presence, the security of that should, that intimacy. But if you need more, then the Bible offers us more because, because Christ married the church. He, We are the bride of Christ, so you are individually the bride of Christ. That intimacy with God, it can get no greater. There is no possible relationship that that we could conceive of or that would have any analog other than marriage of the intimacy, the ability to, to be naked and unashamed, to be together, to be exposed, to be vulnerable. That ability, it, it come, God wants that with his people. So there is that intimacy and there is that closeness and there is that, um, uh, that nearness. 
We are so, um, we are so sinful, um, but he brings us so near. And so, therefore, we have the greatest inducements, the greatest encouragements to be a humble people, to be a secure people, to not, to, have, to not have it be so important that people think well of us or even to seek their high opinions because we have the high opinion of our, of our God. And it cannot be removed. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned any of it. We actually deserve hell, but in Christ we get adoption. We deserve destruction, but we, in Christ we get a wedding feast. It's all because of his great grace and great love for us at the cross. And so we have the strongest inducements for humility. Christians ought to be the most humble people on the face of the planet. If we aren't humble in view of the majesty of God's, uh, God or the grace of the cross, then we need to ask ourselves, are we even converted? And I would ask you that question. If you think you're better than anyone, if you really think you're better than anyone, are you even converted? Because that's the question that Jesus is really asking his disciples here. You're talking about being the best. You may not even enter. Not even entering. I'm pretty sure that means they're not even saved, right? So are you converted? Do you know where you stand? Do you know that you deserve nothing? But when we do start to see the majesty of God and the grace of the cross, humility grows in us. We recognize that there is no service that is beneath us because there was no service that was beneath our Savior. There's no humiliation that's beneath us. We're not too good for anything. We're not too good for anything. You know, life humbles you. you. You know this if you've got some years on you. Life humbles you. Relationships break. Things happen. Your health goes. It, there's, all, there's all myriad, myriad humiliations that can, that can come our way. Um, and they're, they're very difficult, but they draw us to, to Christ. I've you know, experienced this very near to myself, just with spending 10 days in a hospital, basically because I worried myself to death. That worry's a sin. And um, God has chastised, chastised me. I had 10 days to sit there just really with my Bible, just reading the Psalms and reading the Scriptures. And know how sweet it was? Sweet time of just meeting with the Lord and not being able to have visitors. Um, and this humiliation is something that our Savior knows a lot about because our Savior was humiliated. He was, he, he was humiliated not just on the cross, but all along the way. And, um, you know, before he, he, was, he was crucified, he washed his disciples' feet. Remember what he was wearing? He was wearing his underwear, his, his tunic, right? So he's wearing, he took off his outer garment, he was wearing his underwear, washed his disciples' feet. That's humiliating. That's exposed. But then on the cross the next day, he was nailed to the cross not wearing his underwear. He was naked. How humiliating is that? Our Savior is familiar with humiliation. Uh, Corrie ten Boom, in her book, The Hiding Place, she talks about her sister and how she and her sister were, because they hid Jews in their attic, they, um, they were carted off and eventually went to a concentration camp. Their father died on the, basically on the way and in the transition, but somewhere along the way, where they, before they went to the concentration camp itself, I believe, uh, they were put in one of these lesser camps and they were paraded around before the guards and all the other Nazi you know, officials and everything. And so they, they, a large group of women, let's just say 100 or so, and uh, the, the guards made them all take their clothes off. And so there was all these naked women. And you could know there, there, was perver there were perverse joys and jeers and all that from the guards. You would expect such. 
and uh, just utterly degrading to the women that they did this to, utterly degrading to. And, to, and, and Corey was there with her, with her sister in this being paraded around and just so humiliated. These are our, this is, this is our spiritual family. These are Dutch Reformed Christians in the 1940s, all right? These are the same spiritual heritage that we have in this church. And so they're being paraded around, and as I'm reading this, I'm just so angry and, uh, and, and that they're doing this. Corey talked about how she wasn't that good-looking of a girl and how she wasn't graced with much beauty and she didn't have a very nice-looking body, and so it was especially humiliating for her. And um, she's in her 30s, I think, at the time. And um, so she's with her sister, and as they're waiting in line, she, she, it's, it dawned on her. And she whispered in her sister's ear, he was naked too. Our Savior is familiar with humiliation. So what's keeping you from embracing humiliation? And and how is humiliation, however the Lord brings it to you, in whatever form he brings it to you, how how is it attacking your joy and affecting your joy in the Lord. Maybe it's in your humiliation that you'll meet Jesus. I bet you, you will meet him there. You'll meet him probably more near in losing your job than you will be in, in being promoted. He'll be more near to you because it's in those places that we find Christ on earth. And so we are to embrace humility I will close now. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean, for going over. I'm sorry. Um, sorry about that. Let me close you with one, one passage that really does capture it all. I went way over. Um, one passage that captures it all is Isaiah 62 or 66:2, where um, the, the proper response is, uh, is this. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. If you truly are humbled, you'll listen to God's word. He is your father. He speaks a word of love to you. What part of God's word is not his word? What part of God's word is the word that you can say, yeah, but that's not the word that you meant. What you said, that's not what you meant. If you're truly humble, you'll take God at his word. All of it. Um, His word is truth. And, you know, if you love me, you will, you will keep my commandments. And so when we look at God's word, you know what the right answer is? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you're very good. Uh, you love us. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who is our example in humiliation, who is also our, our great Savior, who makes uh, heaven uh, possible. We bless you. In your name we pray. Amen.